Now, your page in front of you says, Ruth, from the land of Moab to the lineage of the Messiah. If you've studied the book of Ruth before, then you know that the book of Ruth is historical proof that places Ruth in the ancestry and the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is significant for a lot of reasons. One, it's significant because this is a woman that had no business in the lineage of Jesus Christ. She is a Moabite. She is outside of the election and promises of God for the nation of Israel. And yet God, through His grace, did something for her to include her in the family of God. That's a beautiful truth because it reminds me of what the Lord did for you and I. We had no business being part of the family of God, but He loved us enough that He showed grace to us and allowed us to be grafted into that family. But make no mistake about it, the book of Ruth is not just a beautiful story. It occupies a very important place in the revelation of Scripture. I've got a few facts for you, and I'll go ahead and tell you that the, the bulk of where we're going to spend these next few moments this evening is on the sevenfold purpose of the book of Ruth. Uh, that's found along about the middle of the page. But there are a few interesting uh, facts that I think it, are worth mentioning. Ruth is the eighth book of the Bible. Now, if you ever study numerology, which is the study of numbers in the Bible, you know numbers mean something. Uh, not every number means something, but the ones that do mean something most definitely mean something. You say, what do you mean by that, preacher? Well, uh, I don't think it can be lost on any of us that the number three is significant in the Bible. If you look at the number three as it pertains to this world, you'll find that number three is the signature of the Creator. Everything God created, he stamped the number three on it in some way, shape, fashion, or form. We know that when the Bible says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, we understand that that Hebrew word Elohim is a plural word. And it's not saying the gods, but it is telling us that God is a trinity. And we find that very same language when God talks about himself. Uh, in the book of Genesis, for instance, at the Tower of Babel, he says, let us go down and see what they have done. The Bible says that God uh, made this statement, let us make man in our image. And so God refers to himself as a trinity. But not only in the words that he gave to us, you'll find the trinity everywhere uh, in the natural world. If you were to look at your body, uh, your hand is composed of a thumb, a palm, and appendages, fingers. In fact, your finger, if you look at it, has three sections. It's got a, a first knuckle and a second knuckle and a third knuckle. If you were to look at your uh, body, as it were, you've got a head, a torso, and legs. And on and on you could go. If you're like some of us, you don't just, you weren't just blessed with one chin, you was blessed with three. Amen? That's God just, just taking care to own us that are, that are blessed in a special way. Uh, you'll find that truth all through the book of creation. There are three uh, stratospheres, if we want to call it that. There's the, the immediate uh, firmament. There's the air that we breathe and, and the sky. And then there is uh, the atmosphere. And, you know, you'll see in them space movies where they're burning through the atmosphere and stuff. And then there is the uh, heavenly uh, bodies and uh, the universe, as it were. And so all through creation, uh, liquid exists uh, in uh, three different states in liquid or solid or gas. So you'll find the signature of God upon everything with the number three. Another good example is the number four. Number four is the number of the world, as it were, or the number of the cosmos. There are four directions on a compass or on a map. There are four hemispheres. The Bible talks about the four winds of heaven and the four corners of the earth. 
Uh, the number six is the number of man. The book of Revelation teaches us that, or at least declares it plainly. But you'll find that all through the Bible. Man was created upon the sixth day. The number seven deals with the number of perfection. On the seventh day, God rested. He didn't rest because he's tired. He rested because he's done. And the number seven, all the way through the Bible, deals with the idea of of perfection, uh, the, of course, the week is uh, a good example of that. We talk about Sunday, uh, you know, we, a lot of times because we live in a weekend world, we think of Sunday as the last day of the week, but in fact it's not, it's the first day of the week. And uh, so the number seven deals with perfection. Well, if the number seven deals with perfection or culmination, it should be no surprise to us that the number eight would deal with the idea of new beginnings, a new thing start. In fact, you could say Sunday is the first day of the week, or you could almost say that Sunday is the eighth day of the week, couldn't you? It is the beginning of a new week. And you'll find this to be true all through the Bible. In fact, there's a little asterisk and a little information down at the bottom of your page on new beginnings. Noah, the Bible teaches us, was the eighth person. God had created uh, the old world, as it's called in the book of Second Peter, and uh, that old world was wicked, and uh, God came and judged it with a catastrophic global flood. Uh, but he saved Noah, and Noah became the beginning of humanity, after the flood, not only Noah, but Noah and seven others, or eight people, as your page says in front of you, eight people were saved on the ark. Uh, Noah, of course, had three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. They each had a wife, and Noah had a wife. And if you can do math, you know that makes eight. And these eight people were the beginning of the new civilization. Circumcision was performed on the eighth day uh, to a little baby Jewish boy. There were eight Beatitudes given in the book of Matthew on the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, probably, uh, I think, a more distinct and uh, clear representation is that the endless day will be the eighth dispensation. Now, if you're a dispensationalist, you know what that means. That means uh, periods of time and, and manners in which God dealt with humanity. And uh, God has dealt with mankind in different ways in, in different dispensations. Well, the seventh dispensation is the millennial reign. Well, what does that make anything after the millennial reign? If you study the book of Revelation, you know there is something after the millennial reign. You know how that Satan gathers uh, the uh, enemies uh, from the four corners of the earth, God and Magog against the holy city of Jerusalem. God destroys them with fire from heaven. Uh, and then after that point, God creates a new heaven and a new earth. And when that takes place, that, that then makes that eighth period, or that last period of time, the eighth period of time, the endless day, heaven, when the eternities will roll. And so it is significant that the book of Ruth is the eighth book of the Bible, because the book of Ruth is a book of new beginnings. It was a new beginning for Naomi when she comes home. She left in backsliddenness. She uh, lived in Moab under the curse of God. She left Moab broken and bankrupt, and she comes back to Bethlehem. She thinks her life is over. She says, call me not Naomi, which means uh, pleasant, but she says, call me Mara, and that means bitter. Uh, she says that the hand of the Lord has afflicted me. The, the Almighty has afflicted me. His hand has gone out against me. And she's basically saying, my life's over. And she told Ruth and Orpah, her daughters-in-law, said, go back. I don't have any more children. I don't have any more sons. My life is over. But she comes back to Bethlehem, and there she finds a new beginning through the kinsman redeemer, 
Boaz. So the book of Ruth is a book of new beginnings. It has four chapters in it, 85 verses and more than 2,500 words. It was one of the festival scrolls, still is to this day. Uh, you'll see another uh, double asterisk there, and you'll see at the bottom that there were five books of the Bible that Orthodox Jews read at different feast days. On the Feast of Passover, they read the Song of Solomon. Uh, at the Feast of Pentecost, they read the book of Ruth. On the ninth of Abib, which is uh, the memorial for the day that the temple was destroyed, they read the book of Lamentations. The Feast of Tabernacles, which was given to remind the children of Israel they were sojourners and that everything in this world was vain. The book of Ecclesiastes is read. And on the uh, day, uh, the Feast of Purim, which was declared in the book of Esther, when God delivered the Jews, uh, they continue to read the book of Esther. Why is it significant that the book of Ruth is read on the day of Pentecost? It's fascinating to see how the providential hand of God works in the lives of Jews, even in this day when they are rejecting the Messiah. And I understand there are some Jews that have been born again, but as a people, they reject the Messiah. They are steeped in their orthodoxy, and yet still on the day of Pentecost, they read the book of Ruth. Well, why, why do they do that? Well, we understand they do that because uh, that was the time when the harvest was coming in, and the barley harvest was coming in. But for you and I, in this church age that we live in, we understand that the church began in a significant way on the day of Pentecost. In fact, on the day of Pentecost was the day uh, that you and I, as Gentiles, we gained access into the family of God. We were allowed at that point. I understand we have big theological debate and discussion, but at that point, the church, was, which is a called-out assembly, uh, was birthed in this world, and at that point, uh, God turned his focus and attention to the Gentiles that he might call out a bride for his son. Well, what is the book of Ruth except the story of a Gentile woman finding a, a husband, finding a bridegroom, of a Gentile, hopeless and helpless Moabite bride finding in her Jewish husband her all in all. Boy, what a picture of the New Testament church that is. And so they don't even know they're bearing testimony to that, but they are. The book of Ruth is one of only two books of the Bible that is named after women. And uh, it's funny. I'm, I'm going to tell you something. Everybody says men are sexist, okay? Everybody says, men, you're a bunch of chauvinists and so on and so forth. You ask a man what his favorite book of the Bible is, he's liable to tell you anything. Every woman I've ever met, you say, what's your favorite book of the Bible? They'll say, Ruth. And you'll say, why? And they'll say, it's a love story. Or sometimes if they're really, you know, scholars, they'll say, Esther. You'll say, why? They'll say, it's because it's a love story. Now, I ain't stereotyping. I'm just telling like it is. Only one of two books in the Bible named after women. It's fascinating when you lay those juxtaposed beside each other. And we've done that at the bottom of our notes. Look at this. Tell me this is not fascinating. In the book of Ruth, a Gentile marries a Jewish prince. In the book of Esther, a Jewess marries a Gentile king. In the book of Ruth, it begins with a famine. The book of Esther begins with a feast. The book of Ruth ends with the birth of a baby. Maybe that's why more women like Ruth than Esther, because the book of Esther ends with the hanging of an enemy. Makes me worry about them women that do like the book of Esther. In the book of Ruth, a Savior is provided through His law, meaning the Lord's law. Through the law of the Lord, a kinsman redeemer is provided. In the book of Esther, a Savior is provided through a human law. And God preserves his people through human law, or the law of the land. Ruth helps preserve Israel. Esther also helps preserve Israel. Ruth perpetuates the messianic line. 
Now, I, I, I hate to give it away, because I know you're going to be real surprised when you get to the end of the book of Ruth. But we understand that the book of Ruth, that, uh, that Ruth and Boaz, they have a little boy by the name of Obed. Obed has a little boy by the name of Jesse, and Jesse has a little boy by the name of David. So we understand that that makes Ruth the great-grandmother of King David. So God used this Gentile woman to perpetuate the Messianic line. In the book of Esther, Esther is used to preserve the Messianic line. We know the longest verse in the, in, in the Bible is found in the book of Esther. The book of Esther tells us, uh, Mordecai spoke to Esther and said, Listen, God has raised you up for such a time as this, to protect and to preserve his people. You know, the Jews were at, at a place of peril. I mean, the Holocaust, for them, a Holocaust was about to begin. Haman wanted every one of them killed, but God protected them through Esther. And we see in the book of Ruth that Boaz is the kinsman redeemer. And in the book of Esther, we see Mordecai as the kinsman redeemer. Now you say, well, preacher, that's interesting. You know, Kennedy's vice president is Lincoln, and Lincoln's vice president is Kennedy. No, listen, it's significant. It's significant because it tells us that we have a God of design. We have a God that knew what he was doing. We have a God that is at work in the lives of people that we believe are beyond the working of God in their lives. It tells us that God is not just the God of the individual, but he's God of nations. That gives me encouragement. I don't know about you. I don't know if you've turned on the TV, but our nation just ain't doing so well. It encourages me to know that, man, if God could work in the Persian Empire and could, through this little Jewish girl named Esther, could preserve his people, it tells me that maybe God's got some people in this world that are watching out for those that claim the name of Christ. That's encouraging to me. When we look at the book of Esther, or, excuse man, I'm going to say Esther the whole rest of the time. When we look at the book of Ruth, we're talking about a period of time of about 12 years. Now, it's important to note that that period of uh, 12 years, the first 10 years of it, are encompassed in the first five verses. So really we're talking about a very short period of time. The 10 years, because it begins there with Elimelech and her, uh, his wife Naomi and their sons Malon and Chilion going down into Moab and they abide there for 10 years. But sort of the narrative, if you will, the story, the, the, the love story part of the book of Ruth is only about two years long. It's not a very long period of time. But it's amazing to see how much God does in two years. I was sitting and talking with our missionary last night, and uh, man, it was a blessing to have them back with us. And uh, when we were sitting around fellowship and afterwards, it, they'd been on the field for two years. And we got to talk about our country and politics and just how things are. And uh, I, I know you wouldn't believe this, but he can't wait to get back to Zambia where things is normal. <laughs> and then, I mean, at least there all they got to worry about somebody riding through the streets with a, you know, AK-47 or something. And uh, he said, it is amazing how much has changed in two years. He said, two years ago, before we left, the president still claimed he was a Christian and said he was opposed to gay marriage. Isn't that true? Now, you and I knew that he wasn't a Christian. I understand it. But he still claimed to be. Claimed to be a Christian. Claimed to be opposed to gay marriage. Claimed... I mean, there's a lot changed in two years. I'm not up here to get on soapbox, break politics. I'm just merely saying, a lot has changed in two years. A lot has changed for the bad in two years. But it encourages me to know that as much bad has happened in two years, here in the story of Ruth, God does something miraculous in such a short period of time. I'm telling you, God's hands are not bound. His arm is not shortened. He's able to move 
and the Word. So it's a period of about 12 years. There's three key people in the book of Ruth. There's, there's several people in it, but the key people are Ruth, couldn't have figured that, could you? Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz. The name Ruth, I could give you a hundred definitions for the name Ruth. Bible scholars still debate. But I'll tell you this, every definition for the name Ruth is good. Some people tell you that the name uh, Ruth means pretty, beautiful. Some will say it means friendly. Some will say it means congenial or personality. But one thing that seems to be common, and I think this is a beautiful truth. You know why? Let me tell you something. We'll talk more about this in weeks to come. We talk a lot about people's baggage, don't we? Man, those people, they got baggage. Can I tell you something? Ruth didn't just have baggage. Ruth was the baggage. Am I right? I mean, when Naomi says go back, one reason she tells Ruth to go back, it ain't because she loved Ruth so much. It's because Ruth was proof of Naomi's sin. They let their children go down into Moab and marry Moabite women. She, she didn't just have baggage. She was the baggage. But when God calls her name, he calls her beautiful. When God calls her name, he calls her friendly. That tells me something. That tells me that when nobody saw anything in Ruth worth seeing, God saw something in Ruth worth seeing. Let me tell you something. When nobody saw something in you worth seeing, aren't you thankful that the God of glory saw something in you that was worth seeing? Naomi, who is the mother-in-law of Ruth, is an important figure. We might say she is the second most central figure. In the book of Ruth, and her name means pleasant, we know that she changes it to Mara. And then Boaz, who is the kinsman redeemer. Boaz's name means in him is strength. And he certainly is a most fitting picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we're going to study later on when we get to it. I, I debated whether to talk about it now or when, when we get to it. I think we're going to wait till we get to it. But we're going to look at all the ways that Boaz was a fit kinsman redeemer. But we're going to look at all the ways that Jesus was perfect as our kinsman redeemer. And Boaz most certainly is a beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some people have said... Uh, and I believe this. I believe Boaz is a type of Christ, meaning a picture or a shadow or a figure uh, of, of Jesus Christ. The Bible never calls him that. But somebody asked Dr. Ironside one time, Harry Ironside, they said, how do you know, he's talking about something, may have been the book of Ruth, they said, how do you know that that is a type? And he said, well, he said, I've got a big ring of keys. And oftentimes when I get home and I go to put a key in the lock, all those keys look the same. How do I tell which is the right one? The one that fits is the right key. Well, as you study the book of Ruth and the type of Boaz as the kinsman redeemer, I don't know what to tell you except he fits. Everything in his life is a fitting picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. I know he was a man. I know he was a, a human being. I'm sure he made mistakes like everybody does. I know he was not sinless and perfect. But the Bible chooses to not talk about anything negative about Boaz. And it's because they are presenting him as a beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Two key words that are found in the book of Ruth around 20 times, each of them is in one form or another, is the word redemption and kinsman. The Hebrew word was the word goel for kinsman. And you'll find it in one way or another about 20 times in the book of Ruth. The key verse for the book of Ruth is Ruth 4.14. And the women said unto Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, which hath not left thee this day without a kinsman, that his name may be famous in Israel. I, I'm going to do some praying and thinking and studying about this, but a thought occurred to me last night as I was driving home. You know, Boaz wasn't just a kinsman to Ruth. 
Boaz was a kinsman redeemer to Naomi. We know, and we'll see and study more, how that Naomi is a picture of the believer that has backslidden, has left the will of God. But through her backsliddenness, Ruth comes to know the Lord as her Redeemer and Savior. And I just can't help but think this. You know, could it be that as you and I endeavor to go out and find some roots, talking about some people who got no hope, no help in this world, some people that have no reason to be in the family of God except God loves them, as we find those people and bring them to the kinsman redeemer, could it be that you and I might get to know that kinsman redeemer a little better ourselves? Could it be that you and I might grow to love him more? Naomi, I don't know if she knew anything about Boaz. I tend to believe that she did not when she went down into Moab. Uh, but she got to know him a little better, and her life was the better for it. I, I'm going to pray about that. The Lord may show me some things. We may talk about it a little bit later. When we talk about the chronology of the book of Ruth and the history of the book of Ruth, there is no guessing as to when the approximate period of time is in which the book of Ruth happened because it tells us in, in the first verse. The first verse, it says, Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled. That's a very definite period of time in the history of the nation of Israel. You say, Preacher, I'm looking at Ruth chapter 1. How can I find out more about when the, the judges ruled? Well, let me tell you something real easy. Look on the previous page, <laughs> because you'll find the book of Judges. It is somewhere within this period of time that the book of Ruth fits. This is significant on so many levels. We believe, or I believe, and a lot of commentators agree with me, amen, that it is possible and maybe probable that the book of Ruth fits particularly during the famine that is caused by the Midianites that is associated with the life of Gideon. You may remember that when Gideon was found, I always liked the story of Gideon. I ain't going to preach on him, but I, but I like the story of Gideon. Because Gideon is, is hiding, threshing his wheat, because he's scared the Midianites are going to come take it away. And the angel of the Lord appears to him and says, Gideon, thou mighty man of valor. And Gideon says, who? The guy, the guy over here counting his lunch money in the shadows, this guy, mighty man of valor. But during that time, the, the Midianites were oppressing the nation of Israel to such a great extent, and you can read about it back in, in Judges chapter 6, and, and you can find out some of the history behind it. But they were oppressing them to the degree, they, were, they would come in, they'd plant crops, the Midianites, they'd come in and steal or burn everything they had. I mean, it was really kind of guerrilla warfare the Midianites were engaging in with them. And, and uh, they, they were, I mean, really the Israelites were having a rough time. During the time of that famine, I believe that that's a good fit. Now, I may get to glory and the Lord say, Toby, he's wrong about that. I think there's going to be some more important things he might tell me I was wrong about. But, but he, he might say, he's wrong about that. But that's my opinion. I believe that it was during that time, during that famine. But we do understand from the fact that it was during the days that the judges ruled that it was during the darkest period of time in the history of the nation of Israel. When you read the book of Judges, uh, it, it, it presents to us 13 different periods of rebellion, 13 different judges are presented to us. The number 13 in the Bible represents the idea of rebellion, of turning away from God, of stiffening your neck, at his command. Even to this day, the world has translated that unpleasantness into the idea of being unlucky. But we know that for the believer, there's no such thing as luck. We understand that when uh, a person has a question, I mean, listen, 
Believers don't have a curse on their life. Sometimes they might have chastisement in their life. They don't have a curse in their life. I'm convinced part of that connotation around the, number, the, the unlucky number 13 has to do with the fact that in the Word of God, the rebellion of, of man is pictured by that number. And so the whole book of Judges, can I sum it up to you? The whole book of Judges, let me say first off that they were uh, days of depravity. If you were to read in chapter 2 and verse 10, the Bible says there arose a generation that knew not God. This was a secular society of sorts. Uh, they still, I mean, listen, Joshua, the grass hadn't even grown over his grave yet. And as soon as the next generation arose, they arose that did not know God. Let me say that is the first step in national calamity. It's when you got a group of young people that grow up and they don't, uh, do not know God. They knew about God. I mean, there's no question they knew about God. The Bible says they knew not the Lord. It's not that they didn't know about him. It's that they didn't know him. It's why we ought to endeavor to make sure that our kids and grandchildren, any young people that God blesses us with a scope of influence in their life, that they come to know Christ as their personal Savior. They were days of depravity. They were days of delinquency. Now, we know that because the pattern of rebellion that is exhibited. But that rebellion culminates itself in, uh, in uh, chapter number 19 in a most heinous way. The reason for this, the Bible says several times, two different times in the book of Judges, it says that, there, that they, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Several times the Bible says there was no king in Israel. And because of this, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. If ever there was a picture of the world we live in right now, October of 2015, we live in a day where every man does that which is right in his own eyes, and he ain't even ashamed of it. That's the world we live in, and dark days, my friend, dark days that we're headed into. They were days of delinquency. They were days of deviance. This wickedness culminates in chapter number 19. Now, I actually, y'all are going to think I'm weird, okay? But there are certain portions of the Bible that are so odd that I just can't help but preach on them, okay? Uh, there are certain portions, because you're never going to hear anybody preach on I remember hearing a preacher one time, he was preaching on Ezekiel chapter 1, and he was in a big Bible conference, he said, when you show up at these Bible conferences, you're always afraid you're going to get there and preach on something somebody else has already preached on. He said, I ain't worried about that tonight. Open to Ezekiel chapter 1. Well, I, I like portions of the Bible like that, that people run from and avoid. There's a most heinous story in, in Judges chapter 19. It was just a few months ago I preached on you. may remember it. But there's the story of a Levite whose concubine runs away and leaves home. And he goes and finds this, this concubine uh, in, in the house of her father. And he stays there in revelry, drinking and carrying on. And, and, and the, the father-in-law is trying to get him to stay and get him to stay and get him to stay. And they stop over, they leave finally, and they stop over in, in a town of belonging to the tribe of Benjamin. And uh, when they stop over there, they go inside. Well, the Bible says that the inhabitants of that town, of that village, they saw this man come in, and they go to the owner of the house, and it's a similar scene to what happened uh, in the book of Genesis at Sodom and Gomorrah. They knock on the door, and they tell the man of the house, they say, send out the sojourner that's with you so we can know him. We know, we're old enough to know what that word know means. And uh, the man that's inside says, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. He says, take my daughter. Instead, do what you please with her. What a wicked, wicked day. But it does not stop there. That Levite looks at that man and says, I can't let you do that here. Let's send out my concubine. 
And they sent out that concubine, and they abused that girl until daybreak. The Bible says that she laid down dead at that threshold. The Levite comes out and sees what's there before him. And to get the message across that vengeance might be enacted upon the tribe of Benjamin, he takes that concubine, he cuts her body in twelve pieces, and sends a piece to each of the tribes of Israel. There were days of deviance. Days when if they had had the news, you would have turned it on and said, how do these things happen? Days like today. There were days of deviance, but there were days of division. Because shortly after that, a civil war took place in which the tribe of Benjamin was almost entirely extinguished. And you say, preacher, you spent a lot of time doing that. Why did you do that? Because I want you to understand the context in which the book of Ruth takes place. It might encourage you to know this, that when it looked like nobody was serving God, there was a little Moabite girl that was willing to step out in faith and come back to Bethlehem. When it looked like God didn't care about anybody in that land, he visited his people and he gave them bread. When it looked like things could not get any worse, like no one cared about the law, like nobody loved anyone anymore, when it looked like the love of many was waxed cold because iniquity abounded, there was a kinsman redeemer that looked at this poor Moabite woman and said, Whose damsel is this? I want to love and care for her. I'm saying this, man, it looks bad. But that don't mean God still ain't God. I mean, God's still God. It looks bad, but God's still God. It looks like there ain't nobody serving God. But thank the Lord that here on a Monday night, we got a group of people that could have been anywhere they wanted to be. They said, I want to be in God's house. I'm thankful that in a day when it looks like everybody's turning away from old-time way, we still have folks that gather and worship and shout and rejoice. I'm thankful in the day when it seems like every door that you knock on gets slammed in your face, there's still people coming to know Jesus Christ. I'm saying we live in dark days, but the sun, he's still shining, and he's still raining, and God's still moving, and God's still working. I believe the book of Ruth has a sevenfold purpose. I'm going to give you this and hush and be done. There are seven things God's trying to show us in the book of Ruth. And I want you to take notice of them. One of the things that God is trying to show us is that he cares for the Hebrew and for the heathen. It wasn't that God used Ruth to get to Naomi. It was that God used Naomi to get to Ruth. You know, this is what Jonah struggled with in the book of Jonah. You know the concept Jonah struggled with? The love of God for me and for thee. That God doesn't just love the Jew, he also loves the Gentile. And the book of Ruth, if it serves no other purpose, it shows us that way back yonder, once upon a time, God loved a little Moabite girl. And God worked in her life in a providential way so that she might find a kinsman redeemer. Now that's important, and it's important for two reasons. It's important because if we're going to rightly divide the word of truth, we have to understand that. You won't understand the word of God till you understand that God has a plan for the Jew and for the Gentile. But it's also important, and here's why. Because me and you, were not in Bethlehem. Me and you, were not surrounded by Hebrews. No, now the called-out assembly is comprised mainly of Gentiles. But let me tell you something. Just as God used a Naomi to reach a Ruth, 
I believe that God still cares for the Naomi's. I believe God still loves the Jew. I believe God still has a plan for the Jew. And let me tell you something. The book of Romans makes it pretty clear to us that just as God used the fall of the Jew to reach the Gentile, God's going to use the blessing of the Gentile to reach the Jew. And he does so through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's significant because it shows us that God cares for the Hebrew and the heathen. It's significant because it shows to us that God always has a witness. You'll find this theme all the way through the Old Testament. In fact, when you study the book of Genesis, you'll find that this witness takes a primary role. The witness at first was Adam. The next witness was Abel. When Abel was murdered, God raised up Seth as another witness. Now, you can believe what you want to believe about this, and I know there will be some that disagree with me. That's fine. We can fight about it later. But when you study the life of Seth and the wickedness that prevailed in the earth down to the days of Noah, and you look at the lineage, the light that shined all the way down, you'll find that Seth lived. A long time. In fact, Adam only died about 60 years before the ark was built. Now, what does that teach us except this? That God always has an eyewitness. Not somebody just that's heard, but somebody that's seen. You know, that's what John was talking about in 1 John. When he said, that which we have seen, which our, which our eyes have seen, which our hands have handled of the word of life. Let me tell you something. I'm glad that you and I, somebody, listen now, somebody else can hear for you, but nobody else can see for you. Am I telling it right? Somebody else can hear for you. They can hear something and translate it to you, and you ain't missed much. But nobody else can see for you. And that's really what it means to be a witness, to experience firsthand something. When they call a witness into a courtroom, they're not asking their opinion. They're asking them what they've seen, what they've experienced. The book of Ruth teaches us that in a dark day, God had a light shining. In a day when nobody cared about anything, God had a Boaz. God had somebody that still knew the law, somebody that still listened to the Lord, somebody that still loved sinners. And it reminds us in these days that we live in of two things. One, we're not alone. Let me tell you, one of the greatest strategies of Satan is to convince you that you're all alone. You know what got Elijah under the juniper tree? This attitude. And he said it several times. He said, I, even I alone, am left. Let me tell you something. Nothing will get you under the juniper tree quicker, wishing you'd die, ready to give up, ready to quit, than this attitude of I, even I, alone, am left. You know what God's answer was to Elijah? I have 7,000 who have not bowed the knee and have not kissed Baal. Well, I just said, man, I'm the only one left. God said, don't flatter yourself. <laughs> and we say, I'm the only one left. God says, don't flatter yourself. God always has a witness. I believe the book of Ruth shows us that choosing and trusting and serving God pays off. I believe it shows us, and we sort of preached on this a little bit yesterday morning, that it's always a good idea to go back to Bethlehem. Naomi could have died in Moab. In fact, it was probably a great temptation for her to do so. I sort of believe if it hadn't been for those girls, she would have. I think she understood that if she had stayed there in Bethlehem and died, they would have remained widows. They would have mourned and grieved over. I think she understood that out of sight, out of mind, if she went back to Bethlehem, they'd maybe 
think that better days had fallen upon her. It would have been awfully easy to stay in Moab, but it pays off to go with God. It pays off to go with God. Naomi went back home and she found a kinsman redeemer. Ruth made the choice that Orpah did not make. Orpah, I mean, she kissed Ruth, or she kissed Naomi, but Ruth claved to her. You know what that tells me? And I may say something about it Sunday morning if the Lord gives me liberty. Ruth had finally grabbed hold of something real and she wasn't going to let go of it. It pays to serve God. When it, when, when it don't seem like it ever pays, it does pay to serve God. You don't have to say, like the psalmist, I've washed my hands and my hands in vain. I've cleansed my heart in innocency. It don't pay to serve God. It don't. Listen, it always pays to serve God. You say, who's going to notice? Well, God notices. You say, who's going to make it count? Well, God will make it count. You say, who's going to rejoice with me? Well, if you can't find nobody else, heaven will rejoice with you when you serve God. It always pays to serve God. It shows us the providence of God at work. Uh, a lot of people have noted that the book of Esther is the only book of the Bible in which the name of God is not mentioned. And that's true. The book of Esther, the name of God, is not mentioned anywhere in the book of Esther. But people have said that there is no book that shows greater the providence of God. I would agree with that, but I would stick right beside it, the book of Ruth. And I'd say that we can see that God works in the most dire of situations. We see in the book of Ruth that God has a plan. And can I tell you something? I, I don't know how to quite explain this. I'm just going to say it and hope you understand. Did you know that that plan of God, it may have not included Elimelech and Naomi's bad decisions, but it certainly allowed for him. Let me tell you something. God has a plan that you and I can't thwart. Now, certainly it made a difference. I, I'm convinced of this. If Elimelech and Naomi had made the right decision, stayed in Bethlehem, God would have got Ruth there some other way. And it would have been better for them to stay. There were three graves in Moab that weren't in Bethlehem, and it was because they got out of the will of God. But I'm also glad to know that when I do get out of the will of God, when I do mess up, when I do make mistakes and bad decisions, that the providence of God, it does not excuse it, but it does allow for it. It's not taking God by surprise. I'm not going to mess his plans up. God is, listen, God's so sovereign, he's not afraid of our free will. People say sometimes, well, is God sovereign or do we have free will? That sounds real theological. But the truth is, God's so sovereign, he gives us a free will. God's so in control, he's not worried about us spinning things out of control. The book of Ruth teaches us that. Teaches us that all things work together for good. Teaches us that the grace of God and his purposes are manifold. That God always has a plan. Listen, don't get nervous. God has a plan. Congress may not have a plan. You wouldn't want to know the president's plan. But listen, God has a plan. God has a plan. The people in your life may not have a plan. Your co-workers, your bosses may not have a plan. But God always has a plan. And his plan is always at work, and his plan always works. So we see the providence of God. Number five, he shows us Christ as our kinsman. Now, again, I'm not going to say a lot about this because we're going to talk a lot about it later on when we get to the, to the entrance of Boaz into this. But he shows us an aspect of the ministry of Christ that we would not understand fully outside of the book of Ruth. Can I give you a good, a good grand purpose and design behind the Bible? The purpose of the Bible is to show us Jesus Christ. To show us Jesus Christ. Christ said this, Lo, I come. The, well, uh, the, the book of Hebrews quotes it from the psalmist, but attributes it and applies it to his life. Lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do thy will, O God. 
Christ said this. He said, search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And they are they which testify and speak of me. All through the Bible you'll find Jesus Christ. Well, where is he in the book of Ruth? In the book of Ruth, and you could probably find him in a lot of places in the book of Ruth, but I mean the biggest place you'll find him is in the person of Boaz. He's the person that cared when there was nothing to care about in Ruth's life. He loved Ruth when Ruth had nothing to offer. Listen now, Boaz's station was made none the better by marrying Ruth. In fact, you know what we find? Can I put it this way? Uh, Ruth was worthless. In fact, she was worth less than dirt. You say, give me chapter and verse on that, preacher. Where does it say that? Well, whenever they go to the first kinsman, you know there's a nearer kinsman. They go to that nearer kinsman and they say, hey, listen, Elimelech, your kinsman has died, and he has a plot of land, and it's your right and your responsibility to pay the money and redeem that land. Will you redeem it? And that nearer kinsman said, oh, yes, I will. I was just looking for a plot of land like that. And he said, well, now, listen, there's a little catch with it. There's a little Moabite girl by the name of Ruth. And Ruth was married to one of the Limelech's sons, and, and here she is in Bethlehem. And if you're going to redeem that plot of land, you're going to have to redeem her. And that near kinsman said, whoa, I'll take the dirt, but I don't want the damsel. Now, Boaz, he's the other way. <laughs> he, doesn't, he doesn't see Naomi walking in and say, wonder what's left of Elimelech's inheritance. He sees Naomi walking in with that little girl, and he says, Whose damsel is this? Who does she belong to? Wonder maybe if I get her number. Amen. <laughs> She's worth less than dirt, but not to Boaz. Man, she meant something to Boaz. There's a hundred ways. We'll, we'll just jump in and have fun when we get there. Number six, it teaches us and shows us God's dispensational plan for the Gentiles through the Jew. Now, again, this is an overarching theme through the entire book of Ruth. If we were to fit the book of Ruth and its purpose into a theological framework, a systematic theology, the best place we would put it is we would put it as being a dispensational foreshadowing of the plan of God to include and graft in the wild branch that are Gentiles into the olive tree that is the Jews. Naomi backslides. She rejects the authority of Jehovah God. Through her rebellion, though, this little Gentile girl is brought into a knowledge of Jehovah. In the same way, uh, God sent a kinsman redeemer to Israel. Uh, the man Christ Jesus, he was uh, made like unto his brethren. He came unto his own, but what happened? His own received him not. They crucified with wicked hearts and wicked hands. They slew the Lord of glory. And when they did that, God turned from the Jew. He's not done with them. He's not cast them off forever. But he turned his attention from them and began to call out a Gentile bride. On and on you could go as you see the place and, uh, that Ruth occupies. I mean, you find, uh, you find Ruth deciding in verse number one. Boy, that's every single one of us. That's where it begins. We decide to accept Jesus Christ. Then we find Ruth serving in Boaz's field. And that's the next step. We get busy serving God. And then we find... Uh, Ruth sitting at his feet in chapter number 3, and that's the next place that a saved person finds themselves. Listen, you'd be amazed, but did you know you find out how to work before you find out how to worship? Could I even say this? We don't work our way to heaven by any means, but nobody worships, really worships, that ain't working. 
Worship. You know what Ruth did? Ruth went and sat down at his feet at the end of a long, hard day. And there she found herself planted. You know, that's how worship is. Worship is not necessarily the charging up of us to prepare us for service. That's done in the prayer closet. Worship is the rejoicing and the rest done after a week of service. We come into the house of God, it ought not be, all right, preacher, here's my empty plate, get me ready for the week. It ought to be, hey, let me come in and shout and rejoice at what God's done in my life over the past six days. Let me tell you what God did in my life. That's what worship is. And finally, you see in chapter number four, she's in the house and home of Boaz. We see her finally in the place that God had planned for her. So it is for the purpose of showing God's dispensational plan for the Gentile through the Jew. And then finally, and I'll say a quick word about this and and be done, it shows us the validity and lineage of both David and Christ. Now you say, how is that, preacher? Because it ties the family of David into the tribe of Judah. It was not, listen now, because Boaz was an Ephrathite. Now you say, where have I heard that term, Ephrathite? Well, you've heard it talked about Bethlehem, Ephrata, in the book of Micah. Bethlehem, Ephrata, of course, was the place where Christ was born. And it calls Bethlehem, Ephrata, though thou art the least in Judah. Ephrata was a region or a vicinity within the tribe of Judah. Ruth was not of the tribe of Judah. On uh, David's mother's side, he was not of the tribe of Judah. Where did that link come in to the tribe of Judah? We know that the tribe of Judah was the kingly tribe. That was the tribe from which all the kings came. That didn't just start with David. The first king of Israel was Saul. He was a Benjamite. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. God had foreordained in the blessings upon the different tribes. When he blessed uh, Judah, he said, Out of thee shall come a lawgiver, and, and talked about his scepter. God gave the authority to the the tribe of Judah long before David was ever around. So David had to be of the tribe of Judah. It wasn't on his mama's side that he was of the tribe of Judah. It was on his daddy's side. Well, how did that happen? It happened because Boaz was an Ephrathite of the land of Bethlehem, Judah. And it shows us how that God, through Ruth, enabled David to be born in the lineage of Judah. And, of course, we know that Christ came from lineage of Judah. I use the term validity for a reason as well. If you study the Old Testament, you'll find that Moabite was uh, prohibited from entering in the congregation of the nation of Israel under the tenth generation. In other words, uh, they had to be ten generations removed in order to do that. And the book of Ruth shows us that that was a reality in the lineage of of David. Now, this is all important. Why is this important? Because God is a God of particulars. God doesn't make a bunch of rules and then break them. The, the fulfilling law should teach us that. God didn't break his own rules uh, when he forgave you and I. Uh, he used the righteousness of Christ in the fulfilling of the law. Uh, keeping the rules is so important to God that he sent his son to die on the cross that his law might be kept and might be satisfied. And so part of the reason for the book of Ruth is to show us that God kept his his rules. So the book of Ruth is one of the most rich books in the Bible. It basically divides itself into two portions. The first two chapters we see Ruth finding grace, and the last two we find her finding rest. And over the next few weeks, I hope this gives you a little insight into the book of Ruth and what we're talking about. Keep in mind these are dark days, but keep in mind that there's a divine witness. Keep in mind that things are bad. But keep in mind that God is good. And keep in mind that Ruth is hopeless. 
But keep in mind that Boaz is full of compassion that God has a plan for her.